0: Welcome to the Buford Sermons Podcast, where we care about the things you care about. For more information or to donate to this ministry, please visit www.fbcbuford.org. Amen, amen, church. You may take your seats and open the Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. This morning, Pastor Jared will be preaching from chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. I'm excited to hear this word again, I don't know about y'all, but <laughs> you'll see why. But Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to a dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. May the Lord add a blessing to all the hearers and doers of his word. Amen. Well, it's good to see you this morning. And I want to turn your attention to this statement. The root of disobedience is unbelief. And unbelief causes an inability to enter God's promised rest. This is the message of the last few weeks as we continue to make our way through the book of Hebrews. And I think it's important for us to recap or notice that the definition of disobedience in the context of Hebrews 3 and 4 is unbelief in God's word. Because unbelief causes disobedience in other areas of our lives it goes all the way back to the very beginning if you remember in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 1 it says now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made he said to the woman did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden the woman said to the serpent we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die Now, the question is, did God really say this? Did he really say, you must not eat from it, and you must not touch it, or you will die? Well, actually, God didn't say that. We see in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16 what God actually said. He said, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. He didn't say anything about not touching it. Now he said, "Jared, that's such a minor detail." Yeah, but she added to the word of God, and at the root of her heart, you can see because she ends up disobeying God, she was twisting the words of God and adding to the words of God because she was enticed by the serpent's proposal. That's what happens when our heart begins to turn towards unbelief. We Take in the word of God and we don't believe it fully. We add to it or we twist it or we make it say something that we know it doesn't actually say. And that's what happened with Eve. She added to the scriptures to make it even more restrictive so that she felt more uh, justified in not adhering to the word. She twisted the words of God and she began to believe wrong things about God's word. And that is the root of disobedience. Unbelief in God's word is the root of disobedience. Therefore, her immoral activity was driven by her unbelief in the word of God. And this really is the focus of the book of Hebrews at this point. It is that if you don't believe in the promises of God that we see in the context of the word of God, then you cannot be saved and you will not enter God's promised rest. The people of Israel didn't enter the promised land because they didn't believe. We will not enter the promise of eternal life if we do not believe in the word of God. That's kind of the point of these chapters in the book of Hebrews. And today we've got a special emphasis on the word. And so the first thing I think we ought to do if we're going to talk about the word is we need a definition of the word. It, it, we've talked a lot about the Word of God, and, and, and this passage in particular, it starts off with, For the Word of God is alive and active. So I think we ought to know what it's talking about when it's referring to the Word. Now there are some who say that the personification here, because obviously it's given uh, uh, you know, personal attributes, it's alive, it's active, um, it, it's able to judge. There, there's lots of personification going on here with the word. And so a lot of people and commentators would say, well, this is actually talking about Jesus. And of course, that's true. Uh, it, it, it makes a little more sense if we make it mean Jesus rather than the written word when it uses words like living and active. It's easier for us to understand that Jesus is living and active than it is for us to understand that these words on these pages are living and active. And so the argument goes like this. Well, it's actually talking about Jesus when it says the Word is alive and active. Um, But that interpretation doesn't completely take the context of Hebrews into account. If you remember, over the last couple of weeks, when the writer of Hebrews is referring to the Word of God, he's specifically referring to Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is specifically referring to Exodus 17 and uh, Numbers chapter 14. So in the context of Hebrews, I'm going to show you in just a second that Jesus, of course, is the embodiment of the word. But in the context of this passage, it's actually really specifically talking about the written words of God. It's saying that Psalm chapter 95 and Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers chapter 14, those passages are alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we need to understand that before we move forward. I want to show you first that Jesus is, is in fact, the Word, because I'm not refuting that argument. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning." We see that one of the names of Jesus is the Word of God because he is the embodiment of the Word. He is the fulfillment of the Word. He said himself, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He's the embodiment. He's the fulfillment of the Word of God. So Jesus certainly is the Word of God, but I also want to show you the description of Jesus as he is today in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16. I think this is so interesting. When the uh, Apostle John writes the book of Revelation, Uh, he writes it because Jesus tells him to and he has a vision of what Jesus actually looks like today and this is a vision this is this is what Jesus actually looks like now in Revelation 116 it says in his right hand he held seven stars and listen to this coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance So. We learn from John 1 and Revelation 1 that Jesus is the embodiment and essence of the Word, but the written Word also emanates from Him. You see, Hebrews chapter 4 says that the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Revelation 1 tells us that that sword, that Word, is coming out of the mouth of Jesus. So what we learn is this. That Jesus is the word of God, but the written word comes out of the mouth of God. This is God's word in a very literal sense. Acts chapter 7 and verse 37, it says, This is Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. This is the living Word of God. So based on this context, it's my conclusion that though Jesus is literally the Word of God, He literally is the embodiment of the Word of God, in this case the writer is also speaking about the written Word that comes from Christ's lips. Dr. Adrian Rogers says it this way, Have you ever noticed that God has the same name for his son as he does for his book? The character of Jesus and the character of the Bible are linked together. If one is fallible, so is the other. If one is a fraud, so is the other. You see, the same name is used for the word of the Lord and the Lord of that word. And as you study the Bible, you'll find out that Jesus, the living word, honored the Bible, the spoken word, and said that the scripture cannot be broken. But as you study the Bible, the written word, you will find out that the written word presents Jesus, the living word, and the written word makes Jesus its hero. Now, you cannot separate the two. I don't believe that the Bible is Jesus or Jesus is the Bible. They are not identical, but they are inseparable, and God has linked the character of the two. If you don't believe in the word of God, then you don't believe in Jesus. And if you don't believe in Jesus then you don't believe in the Word of God. Now, Jesus and the Bible are not one. They're not identical, but they are inseparable. And so that kind of leads us to this conclusive point that I really want to make before we get into the rest of the message, and it's this. The Word is not a commentary about God. It is communication from God. It's not a commentary about God. It's communication from God. It's the difference between a biography, an autobiography, and a letter. Many of you have read a biography. And what is a biography? It is one person's interpretation of somebody else's life. And a lot of people read the Bible like this. They read the Bible like it's a biography. Well, it was written by uh, human men, not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It, It was just written by men. It was their perspective on who God is. And so it might have a couple of good ideas, but it's not really something that I should base my life on. That's what some people think. Then other people read it like an autobiography. Well, I'll accept the fact that God wrote it through men, that his Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, but it's really just telling us about God. It's really not for me, it was for somebody else, and so uh, again, I might take pieces of it that I can use, and I might put some of it into practice, but, but it's really not something I should base my life on. And then there's viewing the Bible as it was intended to be viewed, as a letter. It's a letter from God to us. And in a letter, what's the difference between a letter and a biography? In a biography, you can learn a lot of stuff about the person, but you can't engage with the person. In many cases, they're dead and gone. You can't communicate with them. You can't engage with them. You can't have a relationship with them. But when somebody writes you a letter, there is an intention for you to write back. That's an invitation to a relationship when somebody writes you a letter. And God has written us a letter in his word. And when we read his word, we're engaging in a relationship, and he invites us to respond back through prayer. It's an invitation to a relationship, not a book full of information to take or leave. The word communicates to us. And I want to show you from Hebrews chapter 4 that the word communicates to us in at least Three ways. I'm not saying that this list is exhaustive. I'm telling you that from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, this is what the writer says. The first way that the Word of God communicates to us is by the animation of the Word. The Word is alive and active. Of course, Jesus is alive and active, but also, as we've already said, the words on these pages are alive and active. And we might ask, how is it possible that words written thousands of years ago in the Middle East are still alive and active? Well, because this is how God has chosen to speak to us in this enduring and living way. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So we understand that the word, his word, accomplishes His will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 says, And we also thank God continually, for when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. His word accomplishes His will, but His word also is at work in the heart of the believer. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, this is so amazing, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now this language harkens back to Genesis. When it says that God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam and Eve. And this breath of life was different from the life that he gave the plants and the animals He breathed the breath of life that constituted a spirit in mankind. That we might have a different sort of relationship with Him than the rest of His creation. And this scripture points to the fact that just as God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam and Eve at the beginning of time, when we read His word, He is literally breathing the breath of life into our spirit. You know the feeling of talking to a friend who has been ingesting the word and you get to talking to this friend about the Bible you talk to this friend about Jesus hopefully you speak to your spouse about what Christ is doing in your life and when you walk away from that conversation you feel like you've got a little life breathed back into you you've got a little extra pep in your step I call those life-giving conversations but you know These life-giving conversations don't come from talking about the weather or the kids' ball schedule or the budget. There's nothing wrong with talking about any of those things. In fact, I highly recommend talking about all of those things. But let's not get mixed up and think that those are life-giving conversations. I think a lot of marriages are suffering today because they don't speak life into one another. It's all about the busyness of the schedule. It's all about the crunch of the finances. It's all about the monotony of life. But we're not speaking the word of God into one another. Life-giving conversations are necessary for the believer. It's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. You remember how we stay away from unbelief that we talked about a couple of weeks ago? It says that the way we stay away from unbelief is by our brothers and sisters in Christ coming into the, into the house of God and encouraging one another in the word. That's how we stay away from unbelief. So why are we struggling so much with unbelief in the church today? Probably because we're not putting enough focus on the word of God. We need life-giving conversations on a regular basis. And if you're not having life-giving conversations with your spouse, and I ain't saying that me and my wife do a great job of this all the time, but I will tell you this. When we have those conversations, we're closer. We're more resolved. We we agree on more. Amen? Isn't that nice when you agree with your spouse? Oh, it's so nice. We need these life-giving conversations with one another. But not only is the word of God our life, it's also our power. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Now some would say, well, Jared, the gospel, or the good news of Jesus, it's not the same thing as the word. It's not the same thing as the Bible. And in a way, that's that's certainly true. The gospel is a part of the Bible, but the Bible is certainly more than the gospel. But I want you to notice this in First Corinthians chapter fifteen. It says, "For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised again on the third day, according to the Scriptures." Remember what Doctor Adrian Rogers said. He said. The Bible and Jesus are not identical, but they're inseparable, and that's exactly what this is saying. The gospel, or excuse me, the word of God is more than the gospel, but it's certainly not less. We don't have the gospel if we don't have the scriptures according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God that brings salvation, and that gospel can only be communicated through the word of God. The Word of God is the power of God. If we won't believe it, then we've lost our life. And if we won't proclaim it, then we've lost our power. I heard a prominent voice in the media who claims to believe the Bible once say that as believers in public discourse, we should not appeal to the Scriptures because, you know, not everybody believes the Scriptures. So we shouldn't use them in public discourse. But let me ask you something. How do you explain the swaying of the trees to someone who doesn't believe in the wind? Well, of course you can't. And if you acquiesce to their position and try to explain the swaying of the trees without the wind, you look just as foolish as they do. You can't do it because you have to deny fact in order to explain phenomenon. So what do you do? Well, you just keep lovingly insisting that when they feel the breeze on their face, it's not a figment of their imagination. It is, in fact, the wind. And then you pray and you hope that one day their eyes will be open and they will be humbled and they will acknowledge the truth. That's all you can do. And in the same way, we should not, even in public discourse, abstain from appealing to Scripture. When believers... Don't use the scriptures when discussing issues of morality. We look foolish because we've lost our power. We might be tempted to think, well, maybe if a person just had more information, then they would realize the truth. Stephen Jacobs of the University of Chicago performed a study in 2018 in which he asked 1,932 biologists who classified themselves as very pro-choice if life begins at fertilization. You may not believe this, but 69% of people who classified themselves as very pro-choice biologists said that life does begin at fertilization. Now, I found this interesting because I thought that the culture war on abortion was largely, maybe not entirely, but largely based on this question of whether or not, or at what point life, excuse me, at what point uh, the baby becomes alive in the womb. At what point does... Well, we can't know when life begins. It's just impossible. Nobody can know. But 69% of pro-choice, very pro-choice biologists said that life begins at fertilization. It seems to not be that big of a question in the eyes of biologists. By the way, overall, amongst all the biologists that were surveyed, 92% of them said life begins at fertilization. So, I'll tell you all this to say this. These biologists have all the information that they need to make a determination about truth. They just don't care. Why? Because as a culture, we don't need more information. We need transformation. We need to be transformed. We don't have a problem of the mind. We have a problem of the heart. Do you remember, for crying out loud, the Pharisees watched Jesus perform miracles. And what does it say? It says that when they saw him do the miracles, the only thing that it did was drive them to kill him. They had all the information about Jesus that they needed, but they refused to believe in him as savior and lord. We don't have an information problem. We We can pull out our phone right now, and we've got more information at our fingertips than our ancestors did in an entire lifetime. We live in the information age, and yet the statistics will show you that our country is going farther and farther and farther away from Christ. Did you know that for the first time in the history of our country, a study was just published in which less than 50% of the population has attended a church in the last year? Can you believe that? Our culture is moving further and further away from Christ Jesus, even though we've got more information than we've ever had. And it's because we don't need information. We need transformation. I want to read you 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, that's encouragement for me, but with demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What's he saying here? He's saying we are pursuing wisdom, but not the wisdom of the world. We're pursuing God's wisdom our country doesn't have a mind issue it has a heart issue and only the Word of God the power of God into salvation can transform hearts we should never be ashamed of the gospel or any part of God's Word no matter the situation because without it we don't have any power to change anybody or anything the Word of God communicates with us because of the animation of the word but it also communicates with us because of the division of the word. Now what does it mean when it says in verse number twelve, for the Lord of the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double edged sword, penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. What in the world does that mean? Well, Arkent Hughes said this God's word cuts through our hard shelled souls like a hot knife through warm butter. God's Word, because it is alive and active, does not care about our religious facade. It cuts through all of that to get us to the place of conviction and renewal. There are some that would say that verse number 12 kind of points to a tripartite being, you know, that we are a body, soul, and spirit. It, it's talking about the composition of a human being. Uh, well, maybe. I do believe that. I think it's, it's, it's easier seen in other places. But what I know for a fact that this passage is telling us is that you cannot hide from God. I know for a fact that what it's saying is that God's Word, when we read it, It cuts away things that are useless to our sanctification. In John chapter 15, and verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. When people hear or read the word of God, it has a way of cutting off those who will not believe and cutting on those who do believe. Even those who believe, it says, he prunes. That sounds a little better than cutting, but that's exactly what it is. It's cutting. It's cutting away those buds and those blooms or maybe that fungus or maybe that growth that's not helpful to the growth of the plant. And that's what he does with those of us who believe. He's cutting away things out of our lives that are not helpful to our sanctification. He's shaping us and he's molding us to be more like him. And to be more like him, we have to have certain desires and practices and thoughts cut out of our lives. And that's what the Word of God does. But I do want you to see that in both Hebrews chapter 4 and John 15, we see that this cutting that the Word does, it's not reckless. He doesn't cut away something just to make it hurt. He cuts away things that are necessary to be cut away for our sanctification. It's kind of like this. I don't have one on me, so don't worry about it. But if I had a knife and I walked out in the audience and I walked up to you and I just cut you on the arm, what would you do? I mean, if I walked up to you and I just, like, cut you on the arm, what would you do? You'd probably call the cops on me, is what you would probably do. You'd say, this guy has absolutely lost his mind. But if you had a cancerous growth under your skin... And you went to a surgeon, and that surgeon took out a sharp knife, and he began to cut into your skin and cut out that cancer. Right? You wouldn't call the cops on him. You'd be grateful. Why? Because my cutting had no purpose. But the surgeon's cutting was saving your life. God is no sloppy surgeon. Like a sharp scalpel in the hand of a skilled surgeon, the Word of God cuts away the disease of disobedience in our lives. But we must read it and we must believe it and thereby submit to it. When God cuts away things, I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. Of course it hurts. Sometimes He might cut a relationship out of your life, and that hurts. Sometimes he might cut away a hobby out of your life. And that hurts. Sometimes he might cut a career path out of your life. And that hurts. But when he does so, and you begin to bleed, you just remember that he's doing it for your good. The Word of God divides us. But the last thing is that the word of God communicates to us through the introspection of the word. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 it says it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What does this mean? It just means simply this, you can fool people you can fool yourself but you can't fool God you can't do it Jeremiah chapter 16 and verse 17 says God says my eyes are on all their ways they are not hidden from me nor is their sin concealed from my eyes there's no nook there's no cranny there's no corner there's no closet that you can shove your sin into that God can't see I've used this illustration before But a lot of times we like to treat Jesus, when he comes into our lives, like we would treat a guest in our home. Now, maybe not in mine and Nicole's home right now, because we've got toddlers, and we've always got junk just strewn all over the house. So if you come to our house, uh, you're going to see junk. That's just how it is. But... Maybe when the kids get a little older we might try to actually tidy up before people come over and many of you do that and you would invite Jesus into your heart just like you invite somebody into your house and you lead them into the living room where you've tidied up and you let them sit on the nice couch and you use the nice china and and you, you, you use the nice little coffee cups that you only pull out about once a year and you let them see all the things that you want them to see and that's how we treat Jesus. Jesus, I want you to come into my life, but now I want you to stay over here. Don't worry about what's in that closet. Jesus says, when I come into your life, first of all, I see you as you are before you come to me. But when you invite me into your life, you ain't just letting me in to the entryway. You're not just inviting me in to the sitting room. I'm going into the closets, and we're going to clean out this junk in your life. And it's going to hurt. You're a hoarder. It's going to hurt. It ain't going to be pretty. We're going to fill up the dumpsters outside. And you're going to kick. And you're going to scream. And you're going to cry. But you're going to be better for it at the end of the day. Because you've got a relationship with me now. You're a new creation. In Christ Jesus. That's the introspection that the word brings. And as we read the word, that's how Jesus cleans out our lives. As we read the word, we become more familiar with ourselves. See, God not only knows what we do, but why we do it. That's why you aren't saved just by showing up to church or giving to the work of ministry or insert any display of religiosity that you want to. But it's also why you're blessed for doing all of those things out of a heart that's been changed by the gospel. It's because God cares what you do, but he cares more about the heart behind what you do. And the word, Hebrews says, is able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, anybody can see your actions, but only God can see your heart. And the word of God, in a supernatural way, reveals your own heart to yourself. You say, well, I know myself. I got a good handle on myself. I, I know who I am. Isn't that what our culture is saying to us today? It don't matter what I look like on the outside. It don't matter how God's actually created me. It don't matter actually how God's made me. I'm saying that I'm this, and you better accept it, or I'm going to beat you over the head with it. That's what our culture is saying. But the Word of God says, you don't know yourself. How arrogant of you. To think you know yourself and as we read the word of God we are rev- it's revealing to us those crannies and those nooks that we're trying to hide from God and the Lord begins to clean those things out he begins to throw that stuff in the dumpster he begins to cut those things out of our lives because the word of God is introspective you can't see yourself as clearly as God sees you but engaging with God's Word is the only way for us to grow more in understanding of God, ourselves, and others. Now, I, I just want to point out, as I close, verse number 13 to you. We, verse number 13 kind of took a backseat today, and I apologize to verse number 13, but it says this. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. The commentator David Allen made this point about it, and I just it opened my eyes to something. He, sa- he said this, that when it says that everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account, it's the idea or the imagery of a wrestler who's been pinned on his back. When a wrestler's pinned on his back, he's defenseless. He's overcome. He's incredibly vulnerable. There's nothing else he can do but accept defeat. And that's the picture that we get here of how the word impacts our lives. As we read the word, what God does is he pins us down and we're vulnerable to him. It's like when a dog rolls over and exposes his most vulnerable parts to somebody that he trusts. He's making himself vulnerable. And when we read the word of God with a prayerful heart, that's what happens. We are making our vulnerable to God so that he can cut away at those things that we need out of our lives. I was reminded with this image of the story of Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis chapter 32. It says that Jacob wrestled with God and when it was over he was changed physically because God gave him a limp but he was also given a new name. That name was Israel and do you know what Israel means? It means he who wrestled with God and humans and overcame. Now it isn't that Jacob overcame God, obviously. It's that he overcame the un, excuse me, he overcame the unbelief in his own heart because he was overcome by the Lord. In the same way, the only way that we can overcome our sin is by wrestling with the word of God not because we're trying to beat it not because we're trying to get out of obeying it but because we are seeking to let the word overcome us bless you if we desire to be more like Jesus then we must be overcome by the word of the Lord and by the Lord of that word if we expect to Overcome our circumstances. We must be overcome by the word of the Lord and the Lord of that word. If we expect to overcome our sin, our anxiety, our stress, we must be overcome by the word of the Lord and the Lord of that word. See, the plea of chapter 3 and 4 of Hebrews is this Hear the word of God, believe the word of God, So that you may rest your spirit in Christ. So let me ask you, are you weary this morning? Are you anxious? Are you distant from God? Do you feel powerless? And have a conversation with Jesus by prayerfully reading his word and being transformed by it. You say, I don't know where to start. That's okay. I'll be down front after the service. You can come talk to me. Pastor Stephen goes to the back. You can talk to him. Pastor Wayne will be back there. Chad would love to talk to you. Any of us would love to talk to you about how to begin a biblical journey. Uh, also, join one of our lead groups. Join one of our life groups. Those are great ways to begin those, that biblical journey of diving into the Word of God with other believers. I heard Adrian Rogers once give this illustration where he said, that, uh, he said imagine that you go to see somebody because they say they're sick and you walk in and you uh, sit down with them and they just look lethargic and they just look pale and they just, I mean, they look like they're about to die. And you say, what in the world's wrong with you? And they say, oh, I don't even know. I just don't know. And you say, well, what have you eaten? And they say, well, I usually eat about once a week. And... Uh, well what are you eating well you know I I eat a bowl of cereal about once a week but I just don't know why I'm so weak I just don't know why I can't get out of bed I don't know why I hurt so much what would you say you'd say brother you gotta eat something people been telling me that my whole life I promise I do I know it don't look I know I look pale and sickly and all that stuff but in my case, I promise you, I'm eating. It just don't do anything. You would tell that person, man, you've got to eat something. And you don't just eat something once a week. You eat something every day, three times a day, preferably. Get some calories in you. In the same way, we've got believers in Christ Jesus walking around with no power because they're not ingesting the power of God into their lives. They say, I'm so weak, I'm so anxious, I'm so so scared, I'm so fearful of what's happening in our culture and in our country. And of course, I'm scared too. We all should have some concern, but you don't have to lose your power and you don't have to lose your life. But you can't get what you need just by ingesting once a week. You got to eat every day, multiple times a day so that you can have an active relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and He can transform you by His power. So, if you're a believer this morning, would you say, as Chad comes, if you're a believer this morning, would you say, I I haven't been eating like I should. I haven't been abiding in the Word. I've not been ingesting the word as I should, and I do feel distant. I do feel powerless. I I, I do feel ill prepared to confront the issues of our day. Well, God is inviting you back. He's saying, "Look, my, my word is is right in front of you. Just dive in. Start eating again." On the other hand, are you lost? Do you not know Jesus? Has there never been a, li- a time in your life when you repented of your sin and put your faith and your trust in Christ Jesus, the Savior and Lord? Well, let me tell you the word of the Lord this morning. And it's Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That means you're not, by the way. You're not Lord. You're not all powerful. You're not in control. You're not a great self-determiner. If you make Jesus the Lord of your life. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You can be saved. If you will believe that this morning, you can be saved if you won't, then you can't I would ask you hear the word of the Lord don't harden your heart towards it put your faith and your trust in him and I think you'll find that even though him cleaning out those closets and cutting away that dead flesh it's not easy and sometimes it hurts but I promise you it'll lead to more joy than you've ever experienced Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are so high and above anything we could ever understand, and yet you make yourself available to us. You've spoken to us through your word, and not only have you spoken, but you continue to speak through your word. I thank you that your word is alive, it's active, it's sharp, it cuts away things out of my life that I don't need. You can see the parts of me that I don't want you to see, but once you see them, you help me clean them out little by little so that I can be more like you. Lord, we love you so much for who you are and for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you have been blessed and challenged by this message. If you have questions, prayer requests, or want to know more about how to follow Jesus, please check us out at fbcbuford.org.